You're listening to Westminster on the Fly, a podcast from the Appalachian Roundtable with your host, Pastor Andy Steyer. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Westminster on the Fly. Uh, This is episode four. This is the podcast which works its way through the Westminster Standards. And uh, we are currently working our way through the Westminster Shorter Catechism. My name is Andy Steyer. I am the pastor of Canal Salines Presbyterian Church in Malden, West Virginia, which is a few miles east of the capital city of Charleston. Uh, I want to thank you for listening. And this week we are sort of transitioning in the Shorter Catechism. There's a shift in focus. The first several questions focused on the Word of God, the nature of the Word of God, and the teachings of the Word of God. Uh, And now the... Westminster Divines make a shift, and we are now going to talk about the doctrine of God. Um, And so this question, question number four, and the following question uh, all deal with, um, actually the next several questions, all deal with the, the, the doctrine of God, the nature, the attributes of God, and the doctrine of the Trinity. And so um, as we record this podcast and I'm looking at the questions, I think we are going to tackle uh, questions number four, number five, and number six. So we'll take them in a chunk this week. Uh, So let's start with question number four. Uh, and, and, And let me just recap in case you didn't listen last week. Uh, I said when you when you set out to form a systematic theology, as I believe the Westminster divines were doing, uh, wasn't simply a confession of faith. I think they were also attempting to, in a sense, systematize uh, Reformed Protestant theology. Um, when you set out to write a uh, systematic theology. You, you have one of two places to begin. You can either begin with your doctrine of God, which is where many begin, or you can begin with your doctrine of Scripture. The Westminster Divines, of course, began with their doctrine of Scripture, and the reason for that is that in their minds, Scripture uh, informs and shapes and... Um, molds our understanding of who God is. You have to start with the revelation of God to us uh, first and foremost. You have to understand the very nature of God from his own self-revelation as found in the pages of Scripture if you are then to discuss the doctrine of God. So that's uh, why they do what they do. Um, Although it's kind of funny, I have uh, Herman Bothink's Reform dogmatics on my desk here right now. It's something I'm hoping to be able to read through this year. And I, I just said, if you're writing a systematic theology, you can start with the doctrine of God or the doctrine of Scripture. Bavink starts with the, with the doctrine of dogmatics uh, and defining what dogmatics even are. So, okay, Bavink and some of those Dutch guys are 
throwing a wrench into the system. But generally speaking, those are your starting points. So let's look at question number four. What is God? Very simple question. What is God? If you listen to Jordan Peterson, he would tell you, well, it's complicated. You know, it's, uh, and in a sense, um, you might say it is complicated. We're trying to understand a being who is infinite. We're trying to understand him with finite minds. Uh, But here is what the Westminster divines say. God is. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Now, it is a little odd to me, a little strange to me, that the authors of the Westminster Standards have been somewhat criticized, even from those within confessional Presbyterianism, they've been somewhat criticized over the last 400 years for trying to quote-unquote define God. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, uh, who, by the way, has an excellent lecture series. I think it's on iTunes U, uh, taken from his class on the Westminster Confession of Faith, which he taught at Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, Sinclair Sinclair Ferguson said that... um, These statements about God, the Godhead, the Trinity, they are statements which every biblically orthodox Christian should affirm. No true biblical Christian could ever contest the statements about who God is and what he is like uh, that the Westminster Standards put forth. And yet many Christians, as I just said, have taken issue with the Westminster divines. And I think the heart the heart of the criticism is that they feel as if the Westminster divines have tried to make the infinite God into a finite being that we can understand. Now, first off, let me just say that is an unfair criticism. Uh, of the Westminster Divines, if you read the entire Westminster Standards, it is very clear the Divines are quite concerned with the creation, or I'm sorry, the creator-creature distinction. The distinction between the creator, the infinite God, and the finite creature. And so I really think that's an unfair criticism of the Westminster Divines, um, and yet, this is usually where the criticisms come from. Uh, they, the, oh, these these men were trying to make the finite or the infinite finite, so that we can understand him. Listen, if that was their intention, then I don't think in chapter two of the Westminster Confession of Faith they would ever say that God is incomprehensible. That's what they say about God. If their intention was to take the infinite and make him finite so that we can understand him, then on what grounds could they ever say that he is incomprehensible? Uh, 
rather, I think what the authors of the confession and the catechisms, what they have done is simply summarized what the Bible has revealed God to be. They read the Holy Scriptures, and they say, well, God is a spirit. And Jesus says the same thing, John chapter 4, verse 24, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We'll talk about that in just a moment. They, they read the Bible and say, God is a spirit. Okay, what kind of spirit? Well, he's an infinite spirit. He's an, un, uh, uh, an eternal, an eternal spirit. No beginning, no end, infinite. No bounds could ever be put upon him. He is unchangeable. He's not like us. He's not wishy-washy. He doesn't move about with passions. He's not uh, meaning, not that God doesn't, in one sense, feel things. Certainly the Bible speaks in those terms, and we understand that that is um, the Bible putting into language we can understand uh, the infinite nature of God, but he's unchangeable. Uh, one of the great lines in hymnody comes from the hymn, uh, I Hear the Words of Love, speaking of, of God. He, I change he changes not. He's unchangeable. He is unchangeable in his being, in his personhood, who he is. He's unchangeable in his divine wisdom. He is unchangeable in his power. He is unchangeable and infinite and eternal in all of these things. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his holiness. In his justice, his standard of what is right and wrong does not change like ours does with the winds of cultural acceptance and things like that. He does not change in his goodness. He does not change in truth. Does anybody really want to contest and argue with what the Westminster divines have said here? This is who God has revealed himself to be in the pages of scripture. If the Westminster divines are trying to make the infinite finite so that we can understand them, then really their beef is not with the Westminster divines, it's with the very word of God itself. But the word of God is God condescending to the finite creature to make himself known. That's what the Westminster divines were doing. They were simply summarizing what the Bible has revealed God to be. They weren't trying to give a list, a complete list of God's glorious attributes. Uh, they weren't trying to exhaust the nature of God. Again, they were simply summarizing what the scripture says. As we think about this question, what is God? I really think ultimately the importance of this question is related to last week's question concerning what the scriptures principally teach. Uh, the Bible, if you've read it, then you know. It overflows with revelation about God's character and nature. And on the practical side of things, as we, particularly if we belong to God, if we are a part of his covenant people, as we pour over the pages of scripture... What should happen to us as we read about who God is and what he is like? Our hearts 
our minds should overflow with love and affection for our great God. That, that should be the result of this amazing doctrine of who God is. Uh, it is, again, going back to John chapter 4, uh, it is Jesus himself who defines God as spirit. And then what does Jesus do after he defines God as spirit? He himself gives the command to worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, we should give some consideration to what it means to actually worship God in, in, in spirit and in truth. And, you know, I'm not one, uh, and I don't say this to demean anybody, but I'm, I'm not one who, in general, uh, quotes uh, someone like John Piper, Pastor John Piper. I think he's very helpful in some areas and, quite frankly, very unhelpful in a lot of areas. But he's helpful here. And I'll just end this brief, brief discussion on the fourth question of the Shorter Catechism with a quote from, from John Piper. He said that worship, it must be vital and real in the heart, and worship must rest on a true perception of God. There must be spirit and there must be truth when we worship God. Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy, and a, chur a church full or half full of artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who deeply and, and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. So, in other words, Jesus is God of spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And what John Piper is saying here is, when you understand what it means that God is spirit, when you understand the person and nature of God and you respond in worship, you must do so both with an emotion, a passion, a zeal for the personhood of God, which you cannot do if you do not understand who God revealed himself to be in the pages of scripture. Uh, and likewise, you must worship him in truth. You must worship him for who he is as he has revealed himself in Scripture. And, uh, and so as we think about this, what is God? And Jesus says God is the Spirit, and the, and the Westminster divines add to that, not adding to the Word of God, but summarizing what the rest of the Bible says about him. And we understand, at least on some level, what it means that God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. What is the result of that? We should worship God in spirit and in truth. So this is the fourth question, giving a broad overview of the doctrine of God and who he is and what he is like. Uh, again, not meant to be comprehensive. Uh, it is meant to be a summary of biblical teaching, not attempting to put the infinite God within a box. God himself has revealed himself to be these things. And our proper response is to worship him in spirit and in truth. 
so that's the fourth question. Now, the fifth question builds off that. Are there more gods than one? So if God is a spirit and infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and, and so on, the next question naturally is, well, how many gods are there? Are there more gods than one? There is but one only the living and true God. This is, of course, the clear testimony of Scripture. You can think of the Shema, Deuteronomy, um, chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Now, of course, monotheism, which is what we're really talking about here, uh, it's not unique to Christianity. Islam teaches that there is one God. Judaism teaches there is one God. And while it, it is safe to say that these religions have perverted and limited, uh, they have a perverted and a limited and a downright wrong doctrine of the one true God, um, it does give us a starting point, really. Um, there is one God. The, the, even moving beyond the Abrahamic religions, I think it's safe to say the Western world generally accepts the notion that there is only one God. You know, wasn't the last time you heard a skeptic uh, of Christianity or any religion say, well, if, if there are if there are gods, meaning gods in the plural, or when was the last time you heard an atheist say, I don't believe in the existence of gods, right? Western society in general doesn't talk about God in the plural, uh, at least not yet anyway. Now, there could come a day when that changes, and I think, uh, I think that's probably happening, but... Uh, it is a presupposition, I would say, in our culture, <laughs> and I don't mean to sound like a presuppositional apologetic, ap apologist, you know, whatever. Uh, I don't even want to go down that road, but it is a presupposition in our culture in general that as we discuss things like the existence and nature of God, we are generally talking about one God. Um I think it's important to note, though, that in the undercurrents of the American way of life and, and certainly in the mainstream spirituality of our culture, uh, I, I do think it's fair to say that despite this presupposition that there is one God, we see that society is far from being monotheistic. And in fact, really, for all practical purposes, our culture is essentially polytheistic. And the reason I say that is uh, because if you do not worship the one true and living God as he has revealed himself in scriptures, you are worshiping idols. Everyone is worshiping something. You're worshiping idols, and chances are you are worshiping many idols. And therefore, on a practical level, most people, though they would say there is one God, uh, in all practicality are worshiping multiple gods. They are functional polytheists. But as followers of the one true and living God, we as Christians, we, we have to ask ourselves an important question. 
Are we living in a way that is truly monotheistic? The last question talked about what God is like, who he is. Now uh, it is building off that and saying there is one God, and we recognize, yes, there is one God, and we could even say culture on a whole recognizes there is one God, but culture, society on a whole lives as if there are many gods. The question for the Christian is, do we live as if we are truly monotheistic, worshiping the one true and living God. We as Christians reject polytheism on the surface. We as Christians reject the modern pop spirituality that we see around us. But if culture and society lives as functional polytheists, the question I want to ask Christians is, are we doing the same? Are we living as functional polytheists? Are we living our lives in a way that brings glory and honor to the one true and living God alone? Or are we too, for all practical purposes, essentially polytheistic? Now, this requires some honesty with ourselves. Because the reality is, even as Christians, we worship many things as God. As Calvin said, man's heart is an idle factory. And the church is not immune to that reality. Uh, we worship ourselves. We worship money. We worship careers. We worship success. We worship status among other men. We worship our material possessions. We even worship our loved ones. They, too, can become objects of worship. They can become idols. And we shower our praise and adoration and affections on these other small g gods. And not only do we worship them, many times we, if, again, if we are honest with ourselves, we go on to put our faith in them. At least in how we live, we can trust these gods with our safety and our security. We look to them for a sense of peace. We put our hope in them. We look to them for guidance, for wisdom. And you see, when we do that, when we worship these things as gods, not only do we steal from God the worship that only he deserves, we undermine the very foundation of the Christian faith. We do not live out our belief that there is one God that he is the first and the last, that apart from him there are no other gods. This realization about ourselves as Christians is painful. Uh, it is ongoing. We hate to admit this about ourselves. Listen, the reality is we don't want to think of ourselves as idolaters. And we confess strongly there is one God, and yet when we live our lives, we just do not live it out. It's a painful reality the, of the people of God here on earth. None of us will ever be free from idolatry until we are in glory. Until we see the one true and living God with our own eyes, without the veil of sin between us, we will never be free of this struggle against idolatry. But that is not an excuse, brothers and sisters. We cannot just simply say, well, this is part of what it means to be human, so be it. No, we, we must make every 
effort to break free from our practical polytheism. Listen, as, as Christians, we know the true reality. We know there is no hope, comfort, security, wisdom, or peace that comes from any other small g God. We know that there is, that only in the one true and living God do we find eternal joy. And so uh, let's make it our effort, brothers and sisters, to pursue not only confessional monotheism, but practical monotheism. Let us pray every day that God, through the working of the Holy Spirit in us, would show us our idols so that we can repent and worship him alone. Let us pray that God would be, as as C.S. Lewis once put it, the great iconoclast in our hearts so that we can truly testify both in our words and in our deeds that he alone is God and worthy of our worship. So this question five, is there more than one true God? Oh, no, sorry, that's the uh, children's catechism version of it. Is there more than one true God? No, there is only one true God. Uh, are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the, true, the, the living and true God. Question five. And then, of course, question six builds off of this. Because question five raises a question, doesn't it? Well, what do you do with the Trinity? That's what the Muslim would say to the Christian. You say you're a monotheist, but you worship the Father, you worship the Son, you worship the Holy Spirit. Not only Muslims, Jews could accuse us of this. Mormons uh, certainly love to uh, attack Orthodox biblical Christianity on this point. So question six, how many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now listen to the clarity in the answer of the Shorter Catechism. There are three persons in the one Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Think about that. How confused we can become concerning the mystery of the Trinity. We just confessed in question five that we as biblical Christians are firmly grounded upon the idea that there is but one only, the living and true God. And now we're talking about three persons. One God, three persons. It is, it really is enough to make our heads spin. And it is no wonder, it is no wonder that I would say a good portion, maybe the majority, maybe I need to think about that a little bit, but a good portion of heresy has sprung up over this issue of the Trinity because it is so perplexing. And it is no wonder that the other monotheistic religions accuse Christianity of worshiping more than one true God. We as Christians have not been clear on our doctrine of the Trinity, as clear as we should be. 
we as individual Christians can get confused and and struggle to express this important doctrine, but it must be clear the Christian church believes the Bible reveals one God in three persons. What does that mean to worship and confess one God in three persons? Again, people throughout the centuries have, have made attempts at explaining the mystery of the Trinity. They've used analogies that have, for the most part, come up short. I think many of you are uh, familiar with that great Lutheran satire video of the uh, Irish paupers and St. Patrick, and they say, you know, Patrick, we're just poor Irish farmers. Can you explain the Trinity to us in a way that we'll understand? And Patrick, you know, according to legend, used the shamrock to, to teach the Trinity. We don't know if that's true or not, but... Um, so Patrick tries to use these analogies and these Irish paupers uh, accuse him of various Trinitarian heresies. Um, you know, that's, that's an issue. The, the analogies that we as Christians have used always come up short. Uh, and they always end up, if you really pick them apart, confessing some sort of Trinitarian heresy. And, and really... Throughout the history of the church, uh, uh, people who have claimed to be believers have gone so far as to attempt to explain the triune nature of God. Uh, they've go, gone so far beyond what the Bible reveals God to be, so far in rejecting what I think all of us should just ultimately say is a divine mystery, that they've abandoned the biblical truth. Uh, some some believe that God simply, uh, just as an example, let's look at some of these, just trying to explain this, this, this divine mystery of the Trinity. Some believe that God simply plays three different roles or, or manifests himself in three different modes at different times. This is called modalism. So at times the fa uh, God manifests himself as the Father, and at other times he manifests himself as the Son, and yet at other times manifests himself as the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, the accounts of the baptism of Jesus Christ cause quite a bit of problems for the modalist heresy, because there you have the voice of the Father audibly heard, the Son physically, visibly present, and the Spirit descending from heaven uh, like a dove. So... I'm not sure what the modalists do with that, other than to say maybe God was a really good, uh, really good at, at uh, throwing his voice, and he had a pet dove. I don't, I don't know, but but the modalist heresy denies what the Bible reveals that there are three distinct persons in the Godhead: one God, three persons, equal in power and glory not simply three roles or three modes that God uh, portrays or plays. Other attempts to describe the Trinity have fallen terribly short. Um, some say that the three persons of the Godhead are simply components of God or, or parts of God. Some people call this the partialist heresy, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are only part of God, one-third of God, 
Neither person is fully God in and of themselves. Only together when they join their forces do they form the one true and living God. Uh, this heresy denies, again, what Scripture plainly teaches, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are fully and equally divine in their persons. And so, you know, I want to be careful. We talk about the mystery of the, of the Trinity, and we should be able to defend it and describe what it is from a biblical perspective, but, you know, we want to only go as far as the Bible goes and no further, because otherwise we end up confessing heresies. Uh, let's avoid analogies altogether. Uh, and realize that despite the many errors and heresies that have popped up over the, over the centuries in attempts to explain the tri-unity of God, that's what the Trinity is, it is a, a tri-unity of God, we need to realize that the church has indeed produced some helpful and biblical documents to help us understand the mystery of the Trinity. This is why creeds and confessions, by the way, are so important. They really do serve as the guardrails to keep us within the boundaries of biblical orthodoxy. Uh, I think one of the greatest creeds produced, which helps us understand the biblical teaching of the Trinity, is the Athanasian Creed. Uh, it's a creed that's universally accepted by Christians, East and West, as being a concise statement of what the Bible teaches concerning the triune nature of God. Uh, and I'm just going to read it. I'm just going to read it as I close out this episode of the, uh, of the podcast, Westminster on the Fly. Uh, I'm just going to read the Athanasius, the Athanasian Creed. Uh, in closing here. Uh, and I hope that it will help us understand the great mystery of the tr Trinity a little more clearly so that in turn we may worship the one true living God more completely. So here is the Athanasian Creed. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. That's, <laughs> that's an incredible statement, by the way. Reject the doctrine of the Trinity. You do not have salvation. Now, why, why, why does the creed say that? Well, the reality is because if you do not worship God as he has revealed himself to be as the holy triune God, if you reject the Trinity, you are rejecting the one true and living God. It's that simple. Anyway, Creed goes on. Now, this is the Catholic faith. Now, Catholic there is not Roman Catholic. Catholic means the faith that the church throughout all time and space has confessed to believe. Now, this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, 
the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet, there are not three eternal beings, but there is one eternal being. So too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings, there is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty, and yet there are not three almighty beings. There is but one almighty being. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet there are not three gods. There is but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, yet there are not three lords. There is but one Lord. Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord, so Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. Nothing in this Trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, we must worship their Trinity in their unity, and their unity in their Trinity. Anyone, then, who desires to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. But it is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. Now this is the true faith. We believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time, and He is human, from the essence of his mother, born in time. Completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one human is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. Now, be careful there. That's an attempt, I guess, at an analogy. There is a difference between the human being rational soul and flesh and Christ being both God and human, uh, because in his true humanity, Christ had a human soul and human flesh. So 
just want to interject there. And obviously, as we're reading through the creed, the creed begins with the doctrine of the Trinity, moves on to the incarnation, which is not entirely unrelated, uh, but really comes into play a little later on in the catechism as it talks about who is the redeemer of God's elect and things like that. But I'm just going to read the rest of the creed now because it, it's beautiful, it's important, it's it's uh, precise. <laughs> Sometimes I just can't get certain words out of my mouth, uh, so I'll try different words. Um, and so hopefully it's edifying for us. Going on about the Son, then, he suffered for our salvation. He descended to hell. He arose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the Father's right hand, and from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. At his coming, all people will arise bodily and give an accounting of their own deeds. Those who have done good will enter eternal life, and those who have done evil will enter eternal fire. This is the Catholic faith. One cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. Uh, again, a wonderful creed, and this is what we need to believe about the nature, the person of God. This is what we need to believe about the nature of the Trinity. Well, that's, that's it for today. That was a lot. Next week, uh, we're going to move into a new section, although not entirely unrelated, and begin talking about the decrees of God. And it's in this section that we might begin to sort of get into the distinction, some of the distinctions of confessionally reformed theology. So I uh, hope you will listen in next week. Thank you for listening today. And uh, yeah, that's it. Bye.